Hey, do you want to groove to some great laid-back, bluesy, and soulful jazz on a Tuesday night? And join me, June, for Jazz Alchemy, 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. I mix it up, but always try to spin some truly deep-felt, inspiring jazz to further you on your journey and delve deeper into your passion for jazz, for the great American art music. Keep 89.9 and 99.9 set on your FM dial and share some great jazz together with me on Jazz Alchemy, the magic mix of jazz. And I hope to catch you next time, every Tuesday, 6 to 8 p.m., here on WERU Community Radio. Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. The time is just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the internet all around the uh, wet world at WERU.org. That's our, our friend Schooner Fair in the background piping in Boat Talk for this week. Uh, Boat Talk is brought to you by your hosts, your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, who are now uh, in contention for ancient mariner status. We have been uh, reading some old books lately and looking at uh, old ships, as it were. But we got a whole raft of things to talk about, Mike, today. We'll Take turns, you want to... You're the old fellow on the crew, I'd point I, out. Yeah, I'm the kid. Older and wiser, huh? I'm the kid. How about that? <laughs> Sometimes that's a good thing. Yeah. Yep. No kidding. Oh, uh, well, um, you know, uh, it's an interesting embarrassment of riches to have a boat talk radio program. You can call anybody pretty much on the planet and talk to them about their boat stuff. Yeah, um, the golden we, key. We uh, have a uh, number of people that we're interested in, and just briefly, we we uh, contact a couple people who were not available this morning, and we'll reprise that for just a second. Our friend Steve Callahan, we were intending to have Steve Callahan this morning. Um, there is a new movie about to come out tomorrow, I believe it is, uh, uh, In the Heart of the Sea, directed by Ron Wood. It's been advertised uh, 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 pretty hard, pretty good on TV. Not Ron Wood, uh, Ron, Ronnie Howard, Ron uh, Opie, oh, Ron okay. Howard, okay? And uh, Steve was the maritime safety consultant on this movie, same as he was on uh, The Life of Pi, 
uh, directed by Ang Lee, and uh, actually, I believe, appears in this movie as well. Steve, for people who may not know, is the author of the book Adrift, a true yes. account. Steve had his own uh, survival story. Steve, uh, in a homemade 21-foot boat, was sailing around the oceans, was over a... Uh, in the Azores, headed back to the Caribbean. This would be in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. He uh, hit something in the night. He was very well equipped. He had an abandoned ship bag, but he didn't get it off the boat with him before it sank under him. Spent 76 days on a life raft, drifted over pretty much uh, across the Atlantic to the easternmost Caribbean island, and was uh, rescued. Steve is... Uh, Written another book, if you're a fan of Adrift, you have to check out Capsize. Much harder to find. Steve's other book was not a bestseller, but a great story of a uh, trimaran mm. out of New Zealand or Australia that uh, Capsize spent, I believe, nine months upside down with a bunch of people who didn't like each other stuck on it. <laughs> <laughs> and people usually fail before the boat. I've seen that again uh, most recently, but, you know, uh, we don't tell all them stories on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Steve's not going to be here because... Steve's not going to be here. Well, he has a chance to uh, attend the world premiere with his wife in New York tomorrow. Oh, man. Yeah, and uh, let me thank Boat Talk, world yeah, premiere in New geez. York, Oxman. Well, he's in New York with the wife at yeah. the um, Heart of the Sea. And this is a book by Nathaniel Philbrook in the Heart of the Sea. Um, it tells the story of the whale ship Essex. Uh, back in the 1830s, I believe it was. This is kind of the real Moby Dick 1820. story. 1820s, yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, ship was whaling and not having a good time of it. They come upon a uh, pot of sperm whales, and one of the whales ended up attacking the boat repeatedly and sank the Essex. Uh, um, the men went into the uh, uh, ship's boat and uh, proceeded to, uh, on a survival epic, uh, a couple of them lived, but only after they drew lots and ate a couple of their other buddies. And, uh, yes, they ate their crew members to survive. There is a, um, what do you call it, a, uh, uh, a uh, <laughs> there's uh, ways you do cannibalism in survival situations and ways you don't. And by doing a lottery, they obeyed kind of the unwritten law of survival cannibalism. But it was a rough trip for him. Yeah. And that's the real Moby Dick story. A movie opens tomorrow. Steve Callahan, not with us this morning, though, but maybe next month we will uh, get back to Steve. So um, we also thought to uh, talk to Andros uh, Kipogoros this morning. Uh, Andros, we talked to uh, last November about rebuilding the mast on the schooner Bowden, Maine Maritime's uh, historic Arctic schooner. Uh, Andros is putting a new deck on the Bowden right now. And if you're curious about this, go to uh, Facebook and Friend the Bowden. The uh, Deck Project has some great pictures up there and a running narrative. You will be shocked to see the Bowden. It has, it's naked. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they didn't just take the deck off. They took all, basically all the top planks off, too. Yeah. It's uh, unplanked down to the waterline, more or less. Definitely and um, showing her undersides. Yeah. Um, they have found a little bit more um, that they expected, but that's to be expected. That's the name of the game there. This is a uh, $1.6 million uh, fundraising uh, campaign to redo the ship's deck and uh, strengthen her endowment for literally the next 100 years. Um while the uh, deck is off, they're also looking at the uh, main engine exhaust, the electrical systems. They did the fuel tanks the other day, the, replacing the generator. They are having the um, uh, planks off so they can redo the top of the frames and the stanchions, which are different from the tops of the frames on the Bowden. Um, 
six people working on this. It is in the shed down to uh, uh, Lyman Morris at uh, now at uh, Wayfarer Marine in Camden. They've uh, donated that space mm. for the winter heated Boy, space. That's, that's a that's a big give up. You know, that's huge. That's yeah. absolutely huge. And uh, Lyman Morris ought to be patted on the back for that. Um, yep. It is uh, wanting to be launched in the spring, you know, so it can get back about its business for the next 100 years. Good luck to that. The deck they're putting on it will, um, once again, be totally traditional. I was kind of teasing Andros. Uh, they put a new deck on in 1988, and it's been leaking you know, for more than a couple of years. The deck is literally one layer of planks that is, is paid and caulked over the deck beams. And when water gets through that, Two things happen. It'll drip onto the people downstairs. That's a good drip, and, and a lot of it gets absorbed into that deck in the structure and underneath. it swells up. Oh, it's bad. Bad, 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 yeah. So um, they are replacing the deck with some uh, uh, pine that was uh, grown kind of plantation-wise back at the turn of the 1900s, and uh, this is pretty historic pine that was uh, very carefully managed, and it's going to the Bowden where it's huh. going to be carefully uh, taken care of. Uh, you got to love the boat and being owned by Maine Maritime Academy. Nobody basically uh, could look out for that boat better. Well, it's a national landmark, too. So and as I said, I was teasing them now, the heck with this traditional deck. Let's put down the planks and then put some plywood and dinel cloth. <laughs> we will put sand in our paint and give it a non-skid. But, no, the boat is a national historic site, yeah. and you can't do that. Right. <laughs> You'd probably even caulked with tar, I'll, I'll guess. But. Um, uh, he basically allowed how it was going to be just absolutely traditional, uh, as yeah. it's already been. But the uh, key to the Bowden is it's extraordinarily well looked out for and, again, going to be uh, very well endowed as well. Andros, we ha hope to talk to on a, another another day. Uh, this project will be going on all winter. He had to fly to New York this morning for some meetings. Everybody's and, going uh, to New York. <laughs> yeah, and again, if he's uh, run through the airport in New York, I ain't going to bother him. I, I got pity on him. I was just yeah. there a little while ago. So, so anyway, that's most of it. We ought to uh, also just throw out. Uh, we have a uh, we have a call in in about a half an hour here. In the meantime, you could ring the phone if you wanted to while we that's just true. ramble on about it this. It is that a call in show. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Perhaps you have some naval issues this morning. It, it's the uh, end of the season. We can uh, talk about any of your boat issues, but uh, we do have a couple other uh, interesting news items to talk about here, too. Lots of them. Yeah. The Zumwalt. Zumwalt is a brand-new stealth destroyer, 600-foot. Well, it's a uh, Zumwalt class. I class, think. yes. Um, just launched by Bath Ironworks. Uh, it's literally on its sea trials right now. If you're down in Portland, Maine, you might see it in the harbor. It's a strange-looking ship. It has no windows, more or less. It's all angles that are uh, very unboat-like, but that's um, its stealth features. Yeah, it's and, like uh, it's all tumble home, too. Yep, guided missile uh, uh, frigate, um, you know, uh, interesting vessel. They just, I believe, uh, secured uh, the contract to build uh, another one. special glasses to see it. Yeah, I believe they're building three at Bath Ironworks nowadays. Um, while we're on the Navy... Why don't we uh, talk about one of my all-time naval heroes? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, that's right. Yesterday was Pearl Harbor Day. And uh, they did an exercise before the beginning of World War II to say, uh, let's just pretend somebody attacks Pearl Harbor and they set up a team, an attack team and a defense team. Anyway. They did war games every year, basically, and uh, they were mostly scripted. 
And uh, my hero is a fellow, whenever uh, there's anything about Pearl Harbor, I always uh, look in the index for Admiral Harry Yarnell, and he doesn't show up too much. Um, Admiral Yarnell was uh, basically in charge of a uh, um, naval task force, which was tasked with coming from San Diego to Hawaii in uh, war games in 1932. The idea would be that uh, Hawaii had been uh, captured by hostile forces and that our battleships had to take it back. Yarnell was uh, very intent. He was an early naval aviator, and he was very uh, big on the um, idea that the uh, battleship guns were being endangered by them little airplanes, and uh, the people in charge of uh, the battleship guns didn't like that theory. Um, there are inter-service rivalries and, and turf battles, you know, which is really important. So this is how this goes, basically. Uh, in February 1932, Yarnell pioneered carrier tactics in an exercise that later became uh, known as Fleet Problem 13. Admiral Yarnell commanded the carriers Lexington and Saratoga in an effort to demonstrate that Hawaii was vulnerable to naval air power. The expectation was that Yarnell would attack with battleships, but instead he left the battleships behind and proceeded with only his carriers to the north of Hawaii where it was less likely he'd be detected. With a storm as cover on dawn at, on uh, February 7th, 1932, the day that does not live in infamy, February 7th, 1932, Yarn Yarnell launched 152 biplanes in bad weather with no, uh, uh, no trouble and attacked Pearl Harbor from the northeast, just as the Japanese did 10 years later. The Army airfields were first flown over, and uh, then Battleship Row was attacked. Uh, the judges uh, judged that all the ships were hit and all the planes were destroyed. No defending aircraft were able to launch. The uh, Navy War Game Empires declared the attack a total success, uh, and the New York Times reported on the exercise, noting that the defenders were unable to find the attacking fleet after 24 hours had passed even. U.S. intelligence knew that Japanese writers had reported on the exercise, and the Japanese War College used it in their exercises in 1936. Ironically, ironically, in the U.S., the battleship admirals voted down a reassessment of naval tactics, and the Empire's report did not even mention the stunning success of Yarnell's exercise. Instead, they wrote, it is doubtful if air attacks can be launched against Oahu in the face of strong defensive aviation without subjecting the attacking carriers to the danger of material damage and great loss by the attack air force. After uh, 1932, we built uh, 16, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, 16 more battleships and only four aircraft carriers up until the end, start of World War II when we didn't build any more battleships and built aircraft carriers just as fast as we could. Mm -hmm. Admiral Harry Yarnell, uh, like I say, one of my heroes. Um, but he upset the apple cart. He went outside of his lane. He, he was, was uh, yeah. not careful with, with uh, politics. Yes, he was. And, uh, I don't know, lesson there for somebody. Yeah. I would just say. Phone or, number? Phone number for people who would like to add to uh, this uh, quite an eclectic range of boat subjects today. one 9378 How about uh, the... Newly found, well, it's not newly found, but newly released the discovery of a uh, sunken Spanish uh, treasure ship off of Colombia. 
You're the one that told me about that last night. San Jose. It's the uh, literally the Spanish treasure galleon. It was. It, yeah. It, it, Went down in a battle with a couple of uh, English ships. Um, kind of been lost ever since. A uh, haul of four to seventeen billion 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 dollars. Yeah, with a as B. they're saying, with yeah. a B. Yeah. Depending on uh, this, that, and the other thing. So, so here, uh, here's where the money goes. Um, the governments of Spain and Colombia and the United States are having legal battles as to who gets the money. the the usual the the usual at sea the usual at sea uh, salvage rights give you fifty percent of the uh, the value. When I'm you, not greedy. I only need a couple billion. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what they're ending up with. It's just a few million, actually. Um, the government of Columbia, where the uh, the boat sits, is uh, changed the rules. They say no that uh, that fifty percent rule doesn't work for us now. You only get five percent finder's fee. And uh, what is the golden rule, Alan? The golden rule is the lawyers say, okay, we'll we'll work on that. From the United States, Spain is also stepping in because it was a Spanish ship. They want a part of it. I've always been told the the real golden rule is those with the gold make all the good rules about gold. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and. Um, uh, just one more aside here. If you're interested at all in this sort of thing and how to retrieve that treasure, be done by a, a remote underwater. It's in uh, 700 feet of water. Yes, be done by uh, rem- remote submarines. Uh, ROVs. Um, yeah, ROVs. Uh, there's a tremendous, tremendous book called Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea about uh, the uh, salvage is, of the USS California. Yep. Ship of Gold book. is one of the best uh, uh, underwater books ever, yeah. We got a, a phone call, so let's go to uh, Captain Yo. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome I to Boat Talk. wanted to mention that I just finished reading In the Heart of the Sea, and it's a wonderful book, and I suggest that anyone who is interested in things nautical should find a copy and read it. What I have always found fascinating about the Essex story is that the whale, the bull, while he and his cows were being pursued by the whaleboats of the Essex, he broke off from the pod and swam miles away to attack the Essex. And in particular, where did he strike the Essex? Near the bow, where his butting was most likely to cause the greatest amount of immediate damage. And I've, I've always found that not uncanny, because I respect the intelligence of whales, but I, I've always considered it a patent historical account to that effect, the ability of the whale to understand that the true threat lay in the ship miles away and not the annoying little boats that were poking it. Do we think sperm whales headbutt each other when they fight for dominance and stuff? Oh, gosh. That would be hard to say because they probably do it pretty deep underwater. My guess is they try to bite each other the way they do squid. Yeah, I'm wondering if the... uh you know, if the whale um, again thought that was uh, the ship was uh, a whale or a ship, you'd you think know? that they would have a tendency to go for the head of an object, yeah. ship or whale. Yeah, I have. Um, I was delivering a boat across the Gulf of Maine one time, and I just scanned the horizon. I had gone back to reading one page of my book before I look up again, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I just went, oh my! God. And there was a whale flying through the air. Just a little hair behind and off to the side of me, about 50 yards away, mm-hmm. uh, I uh, humped back. We're just almost totally out of the water. 
And then he spy hopped around watching me. Oh, really? Whale yeah. encounters are always exciting. They but are. Every time I've had a whale encounter, I've been struck very profoundly by the sense that that they are watching, that they are cognizant, that they know we're watching them, that it's a it's an interaction. It's not just a, an encounter. That's always been my experience. Oh, couldn't agree more. Uh, that whale was probably entertaining himself coming up to look at me. Or, or you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Guys, thanks so much for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you, yo. Thank you, yo. We are doing boat talk this morning, and we will uh, have a call in about uh, 20 minutes or so. Call in from a uh, dredging barge off of Fire Island, New York. We'll a muckraker. Yeah, we'll be talking about Maine Maritime Academy skis and a bunch of other stuff. But in the meantime, anything on your mind, give us a call this morning. one 625 Otherwise, we got to rattle on. And uh, noticed in the news also this morning the uh, uh, shrimp moratorium has been Continued for the third year in the Gulf of Maine, and uh, they are talking a dire outlook for the uh, Gulf of Maine shrimp population. Well, uh, talking about how the water has warmed up and the um, stock has quote collapsed with uh, no and uh, in a not hopeful way. Yeah. Um, and just to uh, compound that too, you know about the state oil uh, oil. Uh, Research or what do you call it? One looking for possible oil fields off the Gulf of Maine. Their state oil has been leased a a new piece. It's like right at the door to the Gulf of Maine. We'll be talking about uh, Gulf of Maine oil uh, 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 oil in just a minute here. But the phone's ringing, I believe. Yes, we have Chris on the phone. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to Boat Talk. Oh, Chris dropped the phone. Okay, well, how about something entirely different? The uh, Let's keep on the subject of oil until the phone rings again. Um, right. The Portland Pipeline down oh, yes. in Portland, Maine, is a 236-mile uh, pipeline that goes from Portland, Maine, up the old Grand Trunk Railroad right away to Montreal, the Suncor um, oil refinery in Montreal. Uh, the uh, history of the Portland Pipeline is kind of interesting, um, Portland was always the, the winter port for Montreal and, and Quebec, and until they developed Halifax and, and St. John, um, you know, in the early 1900s, uh, Portland was a very important Canadian port. And the Grand Trunk Railroad came down from Montreal to Portland, and we exported uh, Canadian wheat out of uh, Portland. My grandfather immigrated from County Galway to uh, Montreal in 1911 for $15, he came down the Grand Trunk Railway to Portland, Maine, and was a longshoreman. He unloaded ships his entire life. Um, he unloaded all those ships. In 1914, there were, um, oh, it peaked in 1916, uh, the Canadian wheat um, uh, trade. And by 1932, it was all done. Um, in 1941, there were Nazi submarines off the East Coast, and they built the Portland Pipeline from Montreal to Portland. Um, in 2004, uh, 160 million barrels were going through that pipeline. That's two dozen tankers every month. In 2014, we're down to 33 million barrels from 160 and only two tankers a month. Right now, we're down to half a million barrels. And uh, what is happening here 
is that that refinery has decided not to take foreign oil anymore and is now being supplied by a pipeline from Ontario to Montreal that just got reversed with Western North Dakota oil and Western Canadian oil. Mm. It also gets tar sand oil, but not in the pipeline. That goes in rail cars. So the Portland pipeline is just about to go out of business. Portland used to be the second largest oil port on the east coast of the United States, and it's going to be no oil port whatsoever, let alone no fishing port in no time whatsoever. The uh, consequences in jobs are there's 30 people that work on the pipeline. There's the tugboats. There's the pilots. There's the chandlery people. There's the fuel, the agents, the people that clean the ships. Um, That's a lot of work right there. Um, The other thing that uh, needs to be looked at is what will happen to those pipelines. There is a 24-inch pipe and an 18-inch pipe. The 18-inch pipe's already been mothballed. And there are two possibilities they talk of. Um, They could reverse the flow. And refined oil could come from Montreal to Portland to then be shipped overseas. That would be... That's where the demand That's is. That's our now. kind of XL, uh, little Portland XL pipeline. And the other idea would be to put wires in the pipes and bring uh, hydroelectric power down from wherever in Canada. I like that one better. But we have Chris on the phone again. Yeah. So let's let's go to Chris. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you. Chris did not do a Google search to confirm what she is going to say. But we sort of had this idea that Pearl Harbor Day was this singular attack on the United States, but I believe that Japan also attacked five or six other places at the same time. That's all. Well, yes, they did that day. And, I um, think, yeah, Manila and some other places in the South Pacific, I believe. Were. Oh, most shamefully caught Douglas MacArthur on the ground and wiped out his air force on the ground in, in the Philippines after Doug had already known about Pearl Harbor, which is, again, not one of his bragging points. <laughs> um, but we... Um, we celebrate what we celebrate for reasons, don't we? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're whipping up a war talk again right now. So best of luck with, uh, you know, deciding what's uh, uh, immediately, uh, how, how immediately your hair is on fire. Let's put it that way. So let's, uh, let's go to another phone call then. Good morning. We're welcome to uh, Gray on Boat Talk. Good morning, Gray. Uh, good morning. Thank Great show. Um, you were talking about stealth. Uh, ships who went with this new destroyer from Bath. I just wanted, do you guys know if anybody uses Razzle Dazzle anymore? Defi- oh, uh, you mean paint schemes? Ca- camouflage paint? Yeah, pa- patterns of like zebra, weird zebra stripes. Yeah, which they did uh, back in World War II to break up ship silhouettes when uh, so that somebody looking through a periscope yeah, would be I, confused. I'm just, I'm just wondering if, if that's at all useful anymore. Do you know? I don't think so in the uh, age of electronic uh, warfare, not. you know. Yeah. Nobody's really looking through the periscope anymore as the primary. This this particular boat is not painted with a, any sort of camo scheme at all. It's just all battleship gray. But okay. That could certainly be changed easily, I'm sure. And it bugs the hell out of me because it's got no windows. But, you know, I, I'd like to look out from the boat. But, uh, of course, they don't want nobody looking in either. So they know best. Okay, thanks, guys. Great show. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. We are doing boat talk this morning. We're coming up on halfway through it, just rambling on about this, that, and the other because we had a couple of guests that were not available this morning. Well, here, here's a ramble. Um, both you and I will attest to uh, people who we talk uh, on the street say that they like boat talk. They don't like They don't know anything particular at all about boats, but they like the, the, the boat talk thing. So this next little bit might be uh, something of particular interest to them. Houseboats 
We haven't talked about houseboats on Boat Talk, I don't think at all, or certainly not for a long time. Um, our friends over at uh, Off Center Harbor are having a contest, a houseboat design contest. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. All right. Yeah. Uh, it's going to have cash prizes, and uh, it's, uh, it's not particularly for naval architects or even regular house architects or anybody with design skills. It's a, a kind of a, a homemade kind of houseboat uh, thing, but uh, it needs to be low maintenance and have low probability of failure as a, as a houseboat. It can't be just out of cardboard or something, but um, it's an interesting design, and they're accepting submissions from anybody. You don't have to be an off-center harbor member. Although, if you like Boat Talk, you probably should be. It's a great, great website. Should, I would think, include uh, nautical details, but also there's the small house movement nowadays, you know, the tiny house movement, yep. and uh, you incorporate. Yeah, and no land taxes. That's the big thing for houseboats. Ooh, it's cheap, affordable waterfront. Yeah. Um, you know, literally you can be the neighbor to the Rockefellers or the anybody you want. Uh, I have a friend who uh, built a houseboat on the shore of a lake, and uh, as his houseboat was nearing completion, the... The uh, code enforcement officer showed up and says, how come you don't have a building permit for that? <laughs> and he, Here's a fellow we could uh, talk to on Boat Talk anytime, except for he's busy this morning working at the Front Street Shipyard, I believe. Um, drive across the bridge in Belfast, okay, and look upstream on the river, upstream, upstream. from, oh, from yeah, the that, harbor. Oh, yeah, that funky boat that's there. There's yeah. a boat that's anchored there, okay. That is a, uh, I believe it's a, more or less a Sharpie uh, uh, design, I think, and a uh, fellow that, that uh, built it lives on it. Yeah. He works at the Front Street Shipyard. He commutes to the Front Street <laughs> Shipyard from there. Huh. Think about that. Yeah, a nice yes. row, huh? Yes, there's your houseboat right there. Yeah. It's not a traditional houseboat looking, uh, but, again, he commutes to the shipyard from there. And uh, so, anyway, cool deal. Boat Talk is a, uh, a monthly program. We do the second uh, second uh, Tuesday of the month. We also have a website, boattalk.org. Uh, check that out if you have uh, any thought. And uh, thinking about putting some more energy in, in uh, organization and, and uh, getting... Um, I'm not a website kind of guy, Alan, but I'm thinking we uh, are, are uh, can not doing our job unless we're, we're working with that more. The, uh, we do have a Boat Talk um, Facebook page that you're probably not that aware of either, but there's been quite a bit of activity on that lately. It's put up a post yesterday that has had over 300 visitors already. I made my first Facebook page about ever the other day because I changed my phone number. Yeah, I saw, <laughs> it I saw worked. That. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, we have another phone call, so let's go to Mariah. Good morning, Mariah. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to ask my sister and her husband are actually on a boat in Florida and are living on the boat, but uh, they're discovering that the mooring fees are exorbitant. And um, you were talking about no fees, and I'm wondering how that works. And are there some places where people can moor their houseboats and not get charged, and other places where you can't? They were saying that down there, the state is now making it illegal for people to park their boats out in front of the Rockefeller Mansion. They're just clearing large sections of the seashore unavailable for that sort of thing. You have to be moored in the harbor. Huh. Mariah, the the issue, I would think, is really sewage. Could be, but I think it's also, what she's saying is that it's also, um, you know, protecting the views of people. They don't want to be seeing yeah. those people on their boats out there mansion. Right, because they are sort of cheating and we can't have that. <laughs> 
But um, uh, marina-wise, the um, I'm, I'm in a in and out of a lot of marinas where they have uh, liveaboards who are not allowed to live aboard officially, but do it with the uh, understanding that they don't live there one day of the year, mm-hmm. and they live there all year. And, and the problem is sewerage. Um, you can't just poop into the harbor. And right. um, especially places that don't have as big a tidal flush as we do here, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so, yeah, that's what it comes down to. But also you've got to be tied to something, Mariah. Um, if you're tied to somebody else's pier or mooring, that's a valuable piece of gear. They rent yeah. out. Yeah, they yeah. rent those out for as much as possible. Now, if you're on your own anchor or your own mooring, um, in some ways you're going to be more worried because you know more about what you're tied to, and you should be more worried. But um, <laughs> There used to be lots of places in the intercoastal waterways or just off the intercoastal down in Florida where people could uh, hang out for free, although, you know, if there's no services whatsoever but yeah well they're discovering that they actually started in uh, falmouth mass and and sailed down and they've been on the intercoastal now for over a year and discovering it pretty difficult to find places where you can hang up yeah um there are anchor there are anchorages everywhere but again uh uh, not places uh, i'm not assuming you could uh live forever I uh, was telling uh last boat talk, we uh coming back from North Carolina in October on an Able 50, and we got to Sandy Hook, New Jersey. Come in around the breakwater, grabbed a mooring. The guy come out in the launch, says, you can't have that one. I said, why? He says, I, I, wanna, I, I don't own it. I can't rent it to you. I says, I don't want to rent it from you. I just want to <laughs> borrow it. Yeah. He made me follow him to the other one, and uh, that was a $50 mooring that night that I didn't want to pay $50 exactly. for. But we did that for pure convenience. Because as I was delivering that boat, I hadn't used the windlass. I didn't want to play with it. I could have tossed my anchor overboard, but again, too much trouble. Right. And uh, that's what we pay for, isn't it, Mariah? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm one of those in the category of I don't boat, and I, but I love the show. So thanks for all the education you're giving and also the entertainment. All right, well, I think we have uh, some more houseboard information coming up for you next. We're going to go to Steve on Boat Talk. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, guys. Love well, your show. Welcome to Boat Talk. So we were just talking about uh, Boat Talks and the, the uh, off-center houseboat contest that you're putting on. Why don't you give us some details about that? Yeah, that's right. We, uh, we are all so captivated by houseboats over here. Um, when, when the subject pops up, all the work in our office stops, and we... <laughs> we fall into a deep conversation on houseboats. And so we thought, you know, there's probably other people that would be interested. And um, so we're having a houseboat design contest. Um, and it's on the website. It's on offcenterharbor.com. And the URL people can go to specifically is offcenterharbor.com slash houseboat. And you'll find all the details there about the houseboat contest we're running and the, uh, the deadline for entries is the end of January, and uh, and then we're going to start posting the winners. Um, and by the way, there's three $500 prizes for for winners, um, and we're going to announce those on Valentine's Day, I think appropriately. Nice. Could you say more about why your legs tingle when you think about houseboats? <laughs> well, it's. You know, it might be. It's hard to say. I don't know. Everybody seems to have their own reasons, but there's something sort of magical about thinking about a simple life afloat. Um, you know, and and as you start designing a houseboat, 
which I've been trying to do for a couple of years now, um, on the main coast where there's a 10-foot-plus tide and uh, often freezes in the winter, then you got a lot of design considerations. So it's a really fun thing to talk about and think through, and, and there's so many things. You guys were just talking about anchoring and mooring, and so... You know, that's one of the issues of a houseboat because you've got a lot of windage in some cases. So how do you moor it? How do you anchor it? How do you do that so that it doesn't come down and rest on its on its uh, ground tackle at any point? So there's just so many fun things to try to work through. Huh. My uh, friend Richard Ryder built a, uh, uh, used to be a, oh, um, over to Bucksport there, a uh, boat builder anyway. Uh, he shingled it, which continues to annoy me i i don't think shingles belong on a boat yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly little thing but i'm telling you i love his houseboat it was beautiful but he shingled it and it, it just upsets me he so. wants to sh- sail shingle handed yeah ah <laughs> he I is the funny one. one he's the funny one <laughs> well there's you know just like your opinion there uh it seems like the houseboat concept just brings out everybody's strong opinion so so that's going to be one one aspect we look forward to in the contest is we're going to set it up so people we post people's entries and then there's going to be uh, a place where people can can have conversations and and discussions and and add ideas to each design so yeah so that's that's what's going to make it fun it's going to be some great visuals when we go to the off-center harbor to see some of these uh, things that people come up with i'm really looking forward to that offcenterharbor.com always recommended uh uh, high-end marine content. Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah. We're, we're having a lot of fun doing what we're doing, making all these videos about boats, and especially here on the main coast and traveling to Tasmania early in the year. Of course, Pacific Northwest, we're, we're just having a lot of fun making all these videos. What are you going to do in Tasmania? Oh, we went in February. You know, um, we kept hearing that one of the largest wooden boat festivals in the world was in Australia. And so the more we dug into it, we realized it was in Tasmania and Hobart. And so I flew down there um, for a couple of weeks and shot uh, several videos and went to the festival. And in fact, it is. It's the second largest wooden boat festival in the world. Um, I think there was 500 plus boats and over 200,000 people um, that went through over the course of a long weekend. So it's massive. And Tasmania is just phenomenal it's been sort of a best kept secret um of australia and um now it's started just starting to hit the top 10 list of all the travel magazines pretty pretty phenomenal spot very cool steve if you need a uh, book to read while you're out on your uh, uh road trip there um uh highly recommend brand new biography of captain cook frank mcclinn um huh. extraordinary absolutely extraordinary um, Captain Cook, of course, uh, charted in uh, New Zealand and Tasmania, among other places. Discovered more of the globe than uh, about most people. He, he was a he was a character navigator. Yeah, yeah he was right. a uh, seaman uh, above all seamen. He had no sense of humor, didn't believe in God, and uh, was good on logistics, but not on sharing uh, things with his men. And yeah. died in a misunderstanding with the natives on a beach in Hawaii. So, brand new biography, Captain Cook, Frank McClinn. Could not I got it right here? Could not recommend anything more. Very cool. Yeah, yep. I'll, I'll pick that up. And, and I've just heard about another new book as well that's out that I'm sure you guys would be interested in. Maybe you've already talked about it. Roger Taylor has his first volume out on the biography of uh, L. Francis Hersoff. 
Oh, nice. That's that's new out in the last couple of weeks. And I hear it's great. And uh, we're certainly going to pick up copies here and and do a review of it on the site. Oh, we just wrote it down. Going to talk to the library as soon as we can. Yes, thank you. All right. Hey, Steve, got to let you go. Good morning. Sounds good. and, And thank you, guys. Love your show. Bye. Bye, Steve. We are doing boat talk this morning and uh, expecting a uh, call in a few minutes. Do we have Matt on the phone still from, nope, from Monhegan? And uh, we are hoping to talk to uh, a fellow Maine Maritime Academy graduate this morning who is down working off of Fire Island, New York. And uh, this was part of why we were going to talk about the boating this morning. I thought we'd brag up Maine Maritime in general. And uh, they had a little hard time a couple couple months ago. How do you mean now? The El Faro incident. Oh uh, yes, uh, there were a number of Maine Maritime graduates on the boat. Um, yes, and uh, ooh, it's uh, you know it's a good gig, but there is a chance of drowning, as I like to joke all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, we forget sometimes. I try not to the peril of the sea. Uh, again, just. Uh, spent two weeks trying to find a calm day to get a boat over to Nova Scotia, you know, and we do that very carefully with all the respect. So we have another phone call. Let's go to Richard. Good morning, Richard. Hey, Mike and Alan. How are you guys doing? Good. Welcome Good, to Richard. Uh, tell us where you're at this morning, Richard. I am off the coast of Fire Island, New York. We are uh, pumping up sand back on the beach up here, doing a little, um, like, Hurricane Sandy beach replenishment. Yep, and you're a uh, Maine Maritime graduate. 06, was it? Um, I'm 08. 08. And, uh, yeah. and uh, how did you choose Maine Maritime and why? Um, well, I think I was a bit of a juvenile delinquent, I think. My old man kind of steered me into it. Well, wisdom there. And, um, and uh, you know, pretty much, a, I don't know, I've pretty been, always been a hands-on kind of guy and, uh and that school kind of just appealed, appealed to me for the uh, you know, hands-on training and whatnot. And uh, I kind of wanted to go to sea, so that's where I landed. What do you remember about your uh, main maritime years after jumping off the ship the first uh, weekend? Oh, boy, it was, it's kind of a blur there. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, like I said, hands-on training and, um, you know, the, the, the maintenance and the, Machining courses, I think, were probably the most important part being maritime to me. Um, but uh, cruises and cadet shipping also stood out significantly for me. You've got an engineering degree. You work in the engine room on the dredge, correct? Yeah, I'm a watch engineer, and, uh, you know, I, I operate the day-to-day uh, aspects of the power plant. We've got two 7,000-horsepower Wartzilla diesel engines on here. And, uh, it's kind of my job to keep lights on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Job satisfaction, Richard. Oh, it's excellent. You know, in a um, in a time where good jobs are, you know, kind of hard to come by, I've got a really great one. And, uh, you know, if you can work half the year, I completely recommend it. And it uh, gives you time to pursue your, you know, other hobbies. Now, let's talk about your other hobbies, because that's sort of how I run into you. I was uh, reading the paper and uh, you and your buddy have a, a little side business called uh, YOPP Skis. Tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, the uh, my cousin, who also graduated me Maritime, um, I guess a couple years ago, he um, also marine engineering. And we both go to sea and um, avid skiers. And 
you know, we kind of got into, it's funny, it's boat building. We've read a lot of stuff on boat builders, a lot of composite information. But uh, long story short, you know, kind of due to our backgrounds, our passion for skiing, we started building skis. And uh, first it was kind of a hobby, then it grew drastically out of control. And now um, looking to start production of uh, custom skis um, this fall. And uh, we're doing a big test season trying to get skis out to, uh, you know, friends and family and you know, local skiers in Bethel. What's the idea behind your ski? What makes it stand out? Um, well, it's my ski. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, we put a lot of time into it. We, um, you know, we're, we're not pressed by sales or anything like that. So every, every ski is, you know, it's a custom ski and, uh, we, we designed it to, to suit the particular skier and, um, and, uh, yeah, we, um, you know, carbon fiber, tracks of fiberglass, a lot of uh, really high-end woods and wood floors and flex patterns, and, uh, you know, just a really super high-quality ski built slowly and uh, a lot of love put into it, I guess. A ski is a lamination of a number of different materials. you got metal, plastic, wood, uh, carbon fiber all get to stuck together at one time, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. I'm using a lot of heat and a lot of pressure, and... Um, yeah, you got you pretty much hit all the all the big ones there. Um, you know, you got some plastics. Uh, yeah, triaxial fiberglass, carbon fiber, titanol, uh, your metal edges. A lot of different properties, a lot of different materials, a lot of different expansion rates. So it's uh, pretty tricky putting a ski together. But once you get it, it's it's good. And you have to make a uh, like a clamp or a press, correct? Yeah. So we've got a um, pretty pretty enormous press. To be honest, it's um, it's. Um, I don't know, about an eight-foot-long, two-foot-wide pneumatic um, uh, bladder press, actually, with a little, like, kind of cat track. looks like a bulldozer cat um, a track for a bulldozer, and that kind of contours to whatever you put in the press. And uh, kind of neat. It's a pretty, pretty cool rig. If anybody's interested in your skis, you got a website. What, what, tell us about it. That is yoppskis.com. And, um, yeah, and, you know, the... The, the thing with Maine Maritime is we learned practically all of the basic skills we needed to design and, and fabricate and machine our equipment at Maine Maritime. And, um, you know, we, we go to sea and uh, we have, you know, the time and a little bit of discretionary income to put towards this project. And it's pretty, sets you up for a pretty cool life, to be honest, and uh, really enjoying our, our time, time at home and time at sea. So. I can't say enough about May Maritime. It's a really, really good program. So, Richard, you said you're uh, you're pumping sand onto the beach right now. Is that for yep. uh, uh, erosion control, hurricane uh, buffering? What, yeah. What? So, um, you know, like I said, I'm an engineer, so I'm limited as far as the operation stuff and my knowledge. But my understanding, where um, you know, it's a beach replenishment, and um, Hurricane Sandy wiped a lot of sand off a lot of the beaches on the East Coast, and um, you know tourists and whatnot like the sand so we're pumping it back on and um and uh there's a lot of uh beach replenishment jobs going on to my understanding on the east coast so you uh how, how long do you think this particular job will take you and on, on your boat um i think we're going to be out of here in perhaps six weeks um we you know we work on the off season naturally so in the wintertime, we come we come up here for two winters and pump sand on. Yeah. And I believe this project's getting wrapped up in about six weeks. So it takes you, what, six, eight weeks to do the job, and it takes Mother Nature one day to, <laughs> to undo it. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is this has been uh we've been here for, for several months already and we were here all winter last year and, and you know, this thing it's a four hundred foot dredge. I mean we're we're a dredge ship, um and we, we move a ton of sand. How, and, you know, how, how deep are you drawing it from? Um thirty six feet loaded, Ooh, I believe. That's quite a load. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Navigating through New York on a regular basis, two things that uh think about New York is it's not deep at New York. There's not even 60 feet of water, I don't think, anywhere around there. And um, also the currents of uh, yeah. all the rivers coming and going and all the currents. There are a lot of current and not deep water in New York area. So, yeah, things would move around quite a bit. I don't, you know, I wouldn't know much about that. We got some, uh, amongst other guys, a bunch of main maritime guys up on the bridge around the ship, and, uh, and I keep us safe, but I'm probably... Um, the less knowledge is better for me because I'm not driving driving the darn thing, you know. <laughs> Down the engine room, yep. And again, yeah. um, you know that uh, main maritime engineering education sets you up for um, uh, going to sea and working a uh, seagoing power plant, but also uh, land-based uh, diesel engines as well. Uh, you know, um, sure. Yeah, again, that's guys. oh, a uh, very versatile education for uh, quote maritime academy. Yeah, the. Uh, Guys that graduated with and gals, for that matter, um, they're all over the you know all over the chart. Uh, stationary power plants, steam, gas turbine, nuclear power. In fact, operating in nuclear plants, um, you know, refineries. I mean, guys are just it is about as broad of a spread of engineering type jobs as you can possibly get out of there. Sky's the limit, that's for sure. What's your day look like today, Richard? What's your watch schedule? What's on what's on your plate? Well, we're switching up watches, so I'm going to head down here. Probably as soon as I'm off the phone with you, and um, and uh, work till about dinner time, and then then go on to the midnight to noon watch for my second two weeks on here. And what do we have? Uh, anything in particular uh, besides just uh, making sure the gauges are okay? Yeah, the uh, I'm in the middle of installing and aligning a pump, in fact, for our boiler feed system for our steam plant on here, and that'll be my big project between cups of coffee, I think. But uh, you know, keeping the lights on is the, is the biggest part of the job. So, you know, just keeping the keep the, the plant running correctly, I think, is will be the big big thing of the day. This pump, I'm guessing, uh, bigger than a loaf of bread. Oh, oh now actually, it's a little baby pump compared to our dredge pumps, you know. But um, pretty vital piece of equipment for the uh, operation of our steam plant, that's for sure. I guess what I'm saying is I got to deliver uh, tugboats a couple of years ago, and, and everything's big and manly-sized, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of makes them fun to work on when you, like, say, twist them big bolts successfully. Well, oh, give, yeah, them, some of those give them their money's worth today, Richard. Yes, sir. Well, hey, it was a pleasure, uh, a pleasure to come on and talk with you guys. Uh, you know, both talks pretty cool, and I'm and um, interested to see how the Bowden turns out. I was, I was kind of doing a little research on that and uh, listening in. Oh, pretty cool project they got going on. Couldn't have anybody better than Andros uh, Kipagoros. I'm very impressed with that dude. Uh, yeah. Very impressed with him. Um, you own a old schooner. You need a friend like uh, Andros, and uh, he will yeah. take care of it. Um, yeah, pleasure to talk to you. You are a uh, excellent ambassador for Maine Maritime Academy, and you make me sad. I uh, turned down the chance to go there so many years ago. <laughs> oh, you don't have to go to Maine Maritime. You go to sea. That's for sure. Yeah, that's true too. Oh. A lot of a lot of Maine guys out here. Yeah. That's all right. Good morning, uh, Richard. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Richard Winkler this morning, Maine Maritime graduate, down on a uh, dredge working uh, the sandbank off of Fire Island, New York. We are about 10 minutes left to the end of Boat Talk. Um, 
There's one more thing I'd like to throw in this morning, if I could. Uh, I have one more thing, too. Yeah, so and, and uh, you know, if you want to ring the phone one more time. one 625 9378 we were talking to uh, Steve down at uh, offcenterharbor.com there, and uh, he said it's Tasmania, and I recommended the new biography of Captain Cook by Frank McClinn. And uh, this is extraordinarily well-written. The tale is phenomenal. And uh, Frank McClinn uses some words that I don't even understand, So, <laughs> and I read a lot. Um, it's very well done, but... There's an appendix in this book that scared the crap out of me, and I'd like to share some of it with you. Um, he makes the point repeatedly that Captain Cook, sort of like Napoleon, was lucky. And when we're down on the dock, this happens all the time, people say, good luck. And I say, nope, we hope luck don't enter into it, you know. <laughs> and like the other day going over to Nova Scotia, we worked for two weeks to get a lucky day to go over there, yeah. uh, you know. Um, but luck is important, and Captain Cook was lucky. It says here that uh, Captain Cook never run into a rogue wave. And uh, on the 100-plus-foot uh, waves whose very existence was doubted until the last two decades, the old linear model of wave formation, the highest waves could be no more than 45 feet, and uh, then they would implode from their own stature. The loss of so many merchant vessels every year, about one a week worldwide, according to Lloyd's, used to be set down generically according to rough seas. And uh, it was only after 1995 did scientifically unimpeachable data emerge, which not only proved the existence of these monster waves, but more alarmingly indicated their reasonably common phenomenon. The latest satellite radar research shows about 10 of them roaming the world's oceans at any one time. The scientific valida validation of these giants, variously referred to as rogue waves or freak waves, enable maritime historians to reinterpret some of the unexplained disasters in the past and to verify accounts previously thought far-fetched because science used to tell people that said about them big waves, nope, not possible. There are three kinds of big waves. A tsunami wave will break on the shore, but out to sea it's uh, hardly noticeable, Just not a problem. There is a wind wave that can be, uh, as they say, the, the uh, regular old model that they're talking about, and uh, the biggest ones can have like a 6,000-mile fetch in the South Pacific and uh, build up to uh, oh, 60, 80 feet or so. They are survivable. They can be 100 feet. They're, they are survivable. This uh, rogue wave is a totally different cat, and uh, what basically happens is all of a sudden you find a wave um, 70 to 100 feet high, literally out of nowhere, preceded by a deep trough mariners call the hole in the ocean. And uh, against that... You have uh, about no defense. Um, they point out uh, some historical uh, instances, and most sen sensationally, all three queens of the Cunard line had close encounters with monsters of the ocean. In 1943, in the North Atlantic, Queen Elizabeth plowed into a trough and then was hit by two massive waves in succession, blew out the windows of the bridge 85 feet up. And uh, she was lucky to survive that. In December 42 occurred an event that could have produced the greatest maritime tragedy in history. The Queen Mary was going to Europe. It was carrying 15,000 soldiers, and it fell into a trough off the north coast of Scotland and hit by a wave estimated 75 to 80 feet. It rolled over to 45 degrees and just barely came back up. Mm -hmm. If that had gone down with 15,000 Allied soldiers, it would have been, A, the biggest maritime 
disaster in history and would have been one of the biggest, uh, best things that happened to the Germans in a long time, too. Um, Columbus probably run into a uh, rogue wave on his third trip, among other things, and so on and so forth. Well, we're coming up towards the end, but I've got one more little quick thing to put in here. Uh, you like Jimmy Buffett? Oh, you know, yeah. I've uh, amended my policy on margaritas, but yes. <laughs> he is uh, buying a new boat that's being built right now. Um, and th- listen to this. It's being built, or at least designed by Friendship Yachts, but it's being built by Pacific Seacraft. And you know where Pacific Seacraft is? No, they build nice little sailboats. They I know do. that. Nice little double-unders. But, um, California, aren't they? I would assume so, too, yeah. but South Carolina. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it's called Pacific Seacraft. But anyway, um, they're making a, a 44-footer for Jimmy that's uh, pretty interesting. The whole transom uh, drops down. That's not a traditional-looking like, boat. Like a tailgate yeah. kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, it's one of the more modern boats where the uh, the beam is actually pretty close to the transom, too. It's kind of wedge-shaped boat. But what I think is interesting is it has twin diesel engines, twin 75-horse inch, 75 horse engines with sail drives. So this boat's going to motor along. I might even be able to plane. I don't know. Are these hydrofoils I see sticking down? Those, the those are rudders. They're, okay. they're not quite vertical, but they are sort of twin rudders. Uh, Canted out at an angle. It's kind of yeah. sexy looking. Yeah, a bulb yeah. keel and a, a drop-down tailgate transom. So when you're on a mooring or a, a slip, like you can just walk right out into the water or bring your... Uh, Paddleboard on board. We could uh, discuss the yachts of Donald Trump if we had to. We could probably discuss the lots yachts of yachts of people. <laughs> Mark Cuban's yacht was in Bar Harbor this uh, summer. Didn't didn't uh, like it in the paper. It looked like a skyscraper on its side, all uh, glass, uh, basically. I don't think I know. Who it Mark was pretty Cuban big. Uh, billionaire owner of the uh, Dallas uh, uh, basketball team and uh, oh. Shark Tank on ABC TV. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, now, speaking of um, other interesting boats, I also ran into one uh, on the dock in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia called Record, which is uh, going to show up on Boat Talk. Oh, and I tried Google. I couldn't find that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was looking at this fellow's boat, and he said to me, Jim Sharp. And I looked at him, and I thought, that's not Jim Sharp. And he had just bought the boat from Jim Sharp. Huh. Yes, a fellow named uh, Larry. Uh, oh, Jim, uh, Jim Sharp of the uh, Sales Steam and... Yeah, Whatever down in Camden, who we Cam- intend to talk to. This Rock is a yeah. 1916 Norwegian Canal boat, um, 60 feet long, going to be doing bed and breakfast in Lunenburg. has a two-cylinder diesel make-and-break. You've never seen anything like it. 1914, uh, Dana, uh, uh, like say, 1914 make-and-break engineering. And, again, we'll be talking to Larry sooner or later. The pleasures of uh, running around the waterfront, running into people. Yeah. And uh, having a radio show. That winds up Boat Talk for this week. Stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the Internet at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street in Camden. GambleAndHunter.com